Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, I am lucky to have Mary Grothy on the show. Welcome, Mary. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Mary is the CEO of Sales BQ. Best way to think of them as a fractional CRO. So they help build out revenue departments and they will come in for six months and not only do the strategy work, but also go in and, and make sure that stuff gets implemented. Just at the beginning, as I love to do, I'd love to find out one of your favorite sales books of all time and one or two of your key takeaways from the book. I'm a huge Brian Tracy fan. And early in my sales career, before I even started my sales career, but I knew I wanted a sales career, my manager told me to listen to the 11 cassette tape series of The Psychology of Selling. Man, I couldn't flip those cassettes over for the second side enough. I listened to those tapes over and over and over again. And Brian Tracy's words still ring in my ears today. Some of the greatest foundational principles for sales. I came from a company that had a core product and then seven or eight ancillary products that could be sold. I liked maximizing my average revenue per sale. And so I wanted to sell the kitchen sink on every deal. And unfortunately, my hunger for having large <laughs> deals based on attachment rate sometimes caused me to lose. And in Brian Tracy's training, one thing that really stood out to me is just win the deal and then worry about all the other items that you have. And it really shifted my mindset. So I think his exact talk track was, if you've sold them on items number one, two, and three, but you have 10 things, you don't need to tell them about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. If you sold them on one, two, and three, get the sale. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't walk past the sale. Get the commitment and then be the consultant later. On that note, right? It's very much a land and expand strategy. I know a lot of companies and leaders wrestle with at what point do you hand off a new logo from salesperson to either account manager or customer success? Given what you just said, I'm, I'm curious where you land. And I, I've seen three common approaches. One is you close the deal, you move on. Uh, approach two is you close the deal, you hold it for a year until the first renewal. And then the third one, right, is you basically hold it long term. Where do you land on that spectrum? Ultimately, it's just the structure of your department, but it has to align with what you sell as well. I sold a very complex product, so much complexity on the front end. And I was so intimately involved with my buying team on some of these deals. I had seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 people that were a part of that buying team. So influencers, decision makers, and bringing in the consultant approach I made sure that the discovery was very in-depth and that we were able to uncover a full project plan for them getting from their current state to the desired future state. And so when I came back in and turned in a deal, if it was just on items one, two, and three, and then I still had six things to sell them, I had a full project plan. I had authorization on the spend and the signing. And so if you have a salesperson like me, or if you have a team of salespeople that are very methodical in their approach then that's one thing. The challenge that you'll have if you say to a salesperson that they can hold on to it for a year, are they actively going back and talking to that client? Look at the DNA of your salesperson. Are they true hunter mentality? 
Those that are a true hunter mentality struggle with details and follow through and they don't do account management. And so we've actually seen some sales organizations where they've had this written as a policy, but very few salespeople actually went back to the client that they sold initially to go upsell it again. And so by changing the policy, even though initially the sales team didn't love it because they thought, oh, you're taking this away from me. They weren't selling it anyway. And by immediately transitioning it to account management, ancillary sales went through the roof and they actually had a higher renewal rate because they were in the right hands because they were with a salesperson with the DNA of nurturing and taking care of the client and they thrived on relationships and upselling. So it's really just case by case with the company and you have to look at historical data. So we always say opinions are valuable, but data is priceless. Go look at your historic trends. And then if you can, A-B test and see if you can get different results by testing on one team or one region or whatnot. I'm wondering if someone's listening and they do work for a company with a super complex implementation like you described, like in the ERP space, what can they do as salespeople to not have their customers end up in the situation you described? Don't step away from the deal and ask the hard questions on the front end and be willing to disqualify your prospects. When you're looking at massive technology swap outs, like you mentioned ERP, there are so many moving parts. And so what ended up happening is I trained myself on the technology. I worked with our sales engineers and with our implementation team, and I learned how to map fields and do import exports. And I learned the terminology. I learned how it worked. And then what I started doing, which I don't know if it's right or wrong. I know that I felt like I started winning a lot more because my clients were happier and implementations were more successful as I just asked the tough questions on the front end. I feel like there's an aspect of being a top sales performer where you just want to get the yes. You say enough to get the yes, but you don't always want to expose everything that your technology doesn't do, right? Like who wants to walk into a sales conversation and say, we do these three things really well and we're terrible at these three. Is that going to be a problem for you? But ultimately, that's what I started coming forth into the conversation. And I disqualified a lot of prospects, but then there was a lot more happiness down the road. And then they could go be with a vendor that would be better for them. I even had feedback from some of my prospects that told me that that was a really risky move for me to be as honest as I was, but they appreciated it because the other sales reps I'm competing against are saying things like, no, we've got our implementation down to a science. If you've ever been through that type of technology implementation, you know that's a lie. So I think they just really appreciated that we were really transparent on what could go right, what could go wrong, exactly what is going to take up their time, how much time they need to dedicate. And I think that really moved us to the next level. And even then when things didn't go perfect, the expectation was set correctly. So I think that we were better uh, in a better emotional state, both parties to work through it. It's interesting what you described that you, in a way, became your own sales engineer. Is that trait something that you have also found in when you were working as a sales rep, other peers who were successful, or now that you're you know, leading teams to transform revenue operations? Is that a common trait or not? I'm just curious. I have not seen that much of that. That's why I ask. For me, I think it was one of the pieces that made me wildly successful. I earned so much trust from my prospects because not only could I say, yep, the system does that, I could just open my laptop and say, let me show you. Towards the end of my eight-year mid-market SaaS sales career, I was put on a very special team and we worked with the largest, most complex clients in the country. And we were all top 20 reps. And if you looked at our backgrounds, 
there were three or four of us that came from operations or from a sales engineer role. And we were so technical and so knowledgeable that we were undeniable in the sales process. Did we have access to sales engineers? Absolutely. Are there certain sales scenarios where the prospect's going to think you're lying no matter what because you're the salesperson and you need a sales engineer to say what you just said so that the smart person in the room validates it? Sure. Those scenarios are real. But when you look at the complexities of what we were selling, that team of 12, those were the smartest sales reps in the company. They could demo the technology. They could write their own imports, exports. They could map fields. The language that they spoke was so different than the other salespeople. So yes, I've taken that into the world of SalesBQ when we work with teams. And for any of those teams that were responsible for selling a technology product, I made it a requirement. I brought in a four-week demo certification process and every salesperson had to become demo certified because I didn't want anyone having to wait to schedule with a sales engineer. Meaning, okay, you've got a hot prospect, you're in the sales conversation, we're ready to take it to the next level. And it's like, great, let's align 18 people's calendars. Now we're pushing it out two to three weeks, which is unrealistic. And some of the groups I was working with, it was just very random on which sales engineer was going to get assigned to it. There's no history. They weren't on the discovery. They're coming in cold and blind. They're doing the best that they can with very limited information. There's no relationship with the prospect. It feels super canned. I'm like, this is not good. We work with smaller teams. Our teams are typically three to 12 salespeople are who we work with at SalesBQ. So I think about the organization I came from that had thousands of salespeople. Well, how do you replicate it at that level? And that would be a huge undertaking. But I will say I have seen it in multiple, multiple scenarios helps salespeople win. I'm noticing, by the way, you did something that I did, which was I worked for a company for a very long time. I left in the middle of it and came back. I noticed you left and took uh, like a two, three-year venture into other things. Can you talk about why you left and what you learned? And I would presume that made you stronger when you came back. Oh, completely. I was the number one rep when I left and I was very young. And this was the first job that I had had real job outside of like bartending and waitressing and part-time stuff. But this was my first career and I did it for five years and I was very successful with it. And I was losing the joy. And I started to complain in my role. I started to pick apart things. I started to become frustrated. And that wasn't my natural state. And my manager and I had a very serious conversation about my longevity because I lost heart for it. I didn't become less talented. I just, my emotional state wasn't there and that was hindering my actions. And the performance started lacking. It started becoming really difficult because my head wasn't in the game. And we made the decision at that point, I had an offer from one of my clients to go take on a VP of sales and marketing position. I had never done work like that, but the preceding five years, I had built a pretty amazing career. And during that time, because my numbers were um, at the level they were, I was called by by corporate. I got to help rewrite process and methodology and do training across the country. And I thought, even though I've never held a position like VP of sales and marketing, I believe that I can do this level of work. I'd like to go take a stab at it. So I went, I left the company and I cried so hard. It was such an emotional decision to leave because professionally, it's all I had known. And everyone there was family to me. And it was a very difficult decision to leave. But I went and I pursued a three-year journey. So the first seven months of the three-year journey, I was VP of sales and marketing for a company called Grow. They were small. 
I helped them rebuild product services and take them back out to market. So we did the go-to-market strategy, recruited, hired a team. We ended up quadrupling the company's revenue in seven months. And I realized at that point, hey, I really have this knack and a desire for building process and bringing in custom methodology based on the buyer and the product or service that's being sold. Therefore, I built my first consulting company doing that called Butterfly Creative. And I helped 36 business owners, very small, more on the startup and small business side, take their companies to new levels. And then I met my now husband and I wanted to go back to the payroll company because I had my highest earning income years there. I wanted to buy a house with my husband and get married, have a baby and really build that American dream. And I knew that I could earn a lot of money. So I went back to the payroll company and I loved it. I was so much wiser the second time around and I had a much better head on my shoulders. I was a much kinder person. And I think the professional maturity the second time around allowed me to work a lot smarter. The relationships I built internally and externally were a lot stronger as well. And so there was tremendous success that was brought back forth. But I'll tell you, it was very emotional. The day that I walked back into the office, I felt like I was home. And I just knew that company inside and out. I knew all the red tape. I knew all the head people in the company. I knew how to navigate everything. I mean, I knew, I still remembered all the form numbers, MMS 040, if you wanted to discount something. But I, I mean, it just was so ingrained in my DNA. And when I walked back in there, I was so thankful they took me back. It was such a beautiful reunion, but I did three more years, sold millions, broke more records, had a baby. I'm so thankful to that company for everything that it's afforded me. There are these two levers of success as a rep. One is the amount of activity you do, and the other one, quite obviously, is your effectiveness or your productivity. Most people would want to work potentially less hours and earn more money, right? Like That sounds good to me. (laughs) What are one or two of the actionable tips that you discovered that made you actually more productive and allowed you to potentially spend less activity? Yeah, I managed my pipeline. So before in my first stint, I only managed myself to the leading indicators and the lagging always came. So let me explain. As long as I had 12 meetings per week booked, knowing about two would fall off, I always had 10. As long as I could always run 10, the numbers always fell in my favor And I sold just under a million a year, which was a lot for my quota and against my peers. And so that was the number that I used. And so I was relentless in always having that front end number. So even if I was more effective or was winning more, I never took my foot off the gas. And I just considered that to be great. Then I'm four months ahead of my quota. And so I was really focused on just all in all the time. And it was all about the leading indicators and the lagging results always happened because I had so much volume and activity on the front end. The second time around, I managed the pipeline more diligently. And so I made sure that I always had a top line revenue number in my pipeline that I was always managing to that number because I knew with my close rate, X amount would always fall in. And so I picked the number that I wanted to sell and then I managed it. And so for me, rather than always pouring, 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 pouring in on the top, whenever I got something into the pipeline, I increased my effectiveness on it. And I made sure that I was showing up better and stronger than I ever had in the past. So I had a little bit more dips and the peaks and valleys within my number, but I was smarter on how to manage it. And so when I would look at it and say, okay, 
this deal is 125,000. This deal goes through. That's two months worth of quota in one deal. What do I have behind it? And I would look at the pipeline and say, I don't have anything to replace this deal if it falls out. Or if this one doesn't, I only have one more behind or whatever that would be. And then I would manage my activity to be at a top pipeline number so that it would always fall in. That way it freed me up and I had more time to be exceptional in my sales meetings and through the sales process. So I had a very, very high close rate and I found a lot of joy out of still selling just under a million a year and breaking records and doing great things. But I was selling more to a number versus just a million miles a minute and front loading all the activity healthy advice. I'll ask you one last question, which is, we talked about a lot of things. I'm super grateful for all the actionable tips. I'm curious if there's anything about, you know, revenue leadership, sales, what have you, that you believe that others would find an unconventional belief. Hmm. Let's see. I think what I love and embrace is the uniqueness of how people sell. There are some corporations that are very rigid and everyone following the same sales process, sales methodology, sales scripting, and trying to make sales a little too robotic. Now, I always am careful when I talk about this because there are points to automation that are extremely fruitful for sales organizations and how that works. But I'm talking about you can only script a salesperson so far. And there's something so unique about some of the best of the best salespeople that I've met and been able to witness in front of a prospect. There are so many unique qualities about a top performer where they can just immediately earn trust. Like find that in a playbook, right? Do these three things to earn trust with a prospect. Like it's not that easy. You can't just read it out of a textbook and just see it. And so what I love is embracing what makes your great salespeople unique and really giving them the room to be them and to flourish and even strengthening their strengths versus trying to get them in this rigid form and way of selling. And the story I have behind that is this team of 12, we were all top performers. We all sold differently. We sold the exact same product, service, technology, and to the same size companies and the same industries. And if you lined all 12 of us up and recorded a presentation, I don't know how much you found that was the same between each of these. So where's the right answer and where's the wrong answer? But yet that same group of 12, an investment was made by the company to bring in a playbook. And we're reading through the playbook and it's like, why are you trying to fix what's not broken? And so then it was to say, don't sell the way that you're selling, follow these seven steps and to do it this way and to put in this type of framework. And it was really hard for this team to adhere to. So I'm sure you can imagine what we all did. We just shook our heads in front of management and then we didn't do anything with it. And we still won and sold millions and we were a phenomenal team. So I think what I would bring forth is to really embrace the God-given talents of your top salespeople and really help them strengthen their strengths and and be cognizant and, and make them aware of their areas to focus on that they can improve, but to really embrace great salespeople for the art of being a great salesperson. As one follow-up, I presume in what your company does now, you, you're you now on the other side of being called upon to build playbooks. How do you walk that line? Yeah, carefully, <laughs> carefully. So at every organization, we do a talent development strategy. And this happens within the first 30 days. We look at people, data, and process. And I want to find 
the true understanding for what makes the current team great in what they do and what their areas of opportunity are. And we only believe in personal learning and development plans. And so we're able to construct those for each individual salesperson. And then what we do is we go to the highest performing common denominator to build the playbook process and methodology. Then we'll take it to the age of the sales department. So if we're looking at bringing in younger talent or even not just young, but someone who's early on in their sales career, it's easier to mold them into those high-performing behaviors and process, which is great. And so we custom build all of our processes and methodologies off of the high-performing reps, off of what's working great. And so sometimes it's easier said than done. And that's why we stick around for six months because it's not as simple as, okay, let's just uh, work with you for a week and we'll have a playbook produced. Here you go good luck. That's not realistic. The playbook should be a living, breathing document. Each rep should be coached and managed to the playbook in their own unique way of where their areas for opportunity are and their strengths are. So it's a big ask of management to bring in more of the concepts behind organizational theory and behavior management, where you're managing more to the unique person than you are a set standard process. But Yes, it's built unique off of them. We do look for pulling from the field from your high performers and the people that have really mastered it and figuring out what's working and let's replicate more of that. And then giving each unique person their own grace in the process to make sure that they can shine in the areas that they really shine. I really appreciate the process you follow. I worked for McKinsey people for eight years. The playbook they run when they're on engagements is to stack rank people on performance and go figure out what the top people do that the bottom don't. So it sounds like you're absolutely following that. And, and to your point, that's the table stakes that you know everyone should learn and they're able to, to personalize that and customize that to, to what makes them successful. So I think that's a, a really great way to wrap. Uh, well, Mary, if people want to learn more about you, get in touch with you or learn more about SalesBQ, what's the best way for them to do that? SalesBQ.com. But my biggest platforms where you can connect with me will be on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And it's all Mary Grothy, except Twitter has my middle initial, Mary L. Grothy in there. But I'd love to connect with you. And that's G-R-O-T-H-E if you're trying to figure out how to spell that. So brilliant. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. Peter Lepinto is our editor. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.